On today's episode, we talk about the proto-atomic era. We discover why the nuclear bomb was dropped, and we look at a couple of science fiction novels about the atomic future that were written before we split the atom. Yeah, yeah. I would say I'm definitely most interested in the worthless areas. Yeah. yeah. What's my thesis? I'm your host, artist Javier Proenza. Every week, I share the answers I found to the questions I have. Join me as we explore and expand my worldview through research and ask, what's my thesis? So I have an update that's not necessarily one I'd want to give, but when we started this show, Seth and I, we didn't really realize how much work went into creating a podcast, editing it, and posting it online. And we both just got... We want to apologize, first of all, for the hiatus. But um, we both got slammed really hard at work. Uh, and I think, basically, Seth has decided that podcasting isn't for him. Which uh, I totally understand, because like I said, we had no idea how involved it would be to put out a show each week. And he's decided that it's more of a disruption for him to do the show than I feel it is. For me, it gives me a sense of structure, and I really like you, you know, incorporating research as part of my practice anyway. So this just keeps me going. But I think that Seth has a different approach to... Uh, art making i mean not that he doesn't research or anything but he feels i think it takes a little bit too much time away from him and his other pursuits which i totally understand and like i said we didn't have any idea how much work would go into this it's seriously a lot more than you think um and so yeah he's decided to not continue on as a host of the show which is sad for me i but i totally understand where he's coming from um and i rather my friend get you know relaxed and not be stressed out over this than uh than have him overwhelmed so what i am going to do is i'm going to keep doing the show by myself the plan is to have guests on but at this point you know it's a little bit difficult to just reach out to all your friends and be like hey let's do the show um let's do my show it's a little bit easier when there's two of your friends asking you to do their show so for the time being it's gonna be just me um but i want to give a big shout out uh to seth first of all because i just there's just no way that i would have been able to get to the point where i got myself podcasting i wouldn't have even had the audacity to do it by myself and obviously the show is going to be changing a lot but with his help i was able to sort of find my voice and you know it's going to be different but i wouldn't have the confidence to keep going if it wasn't for seth and i also want to give a shout out to all 
the friends of the show that have been very supportive, uh, specifically Sue Ellen, who's a very kind person, and I just saw recently and had a very nice conversation with. But yeah, and then also our friends Aaron and Bryce, who have been there for us from the very beginning and have basically told us that the show was good to begin with and that there was something there to keep doing. So yeah, I I just want to give a, some love to all the people that have been a part of it uh, from the beginning. So, today's episode is basically a pre-atomic or proto-atomic, because I'm curious about this concept of the atomic age, now that Russia is talking about having a nuclear engine. It made me think of a lot of things that I was curious and interested about when I was growing up. And so, yeah... It helps to know what the atomic age is, and the atomic age, or the atomic era, is the period of history following the detonation of the first nuclear or atomic bomb, Trinity, on July 16th, 1945, during World War II. So that's from Wikipedia, and I'm assuming that that is the name of, obviously, the two bombs have these... The two bombs that they dropped on in Japan have uh, these very um, sort of glorified names that are, I just kind of don't want to say them on the show. So, and by the way, this is not going to be a bummer, Uh, (laughs) fuck, a bummer um, episode. I just kind of want to talk about this stuff as it happened. Uh, We're going to talk about a few books that relate to this in terms of... Um, the progression to the bomb and what kind of stuff was being written about in science fiction in relation to the science that was happening at the time. And we'll see the chain nuclear chain reaction was, in fact, predicted by a science fiction author and may have influenced one of the guys involved in making of the bomb. So the bombings in Hiroshima and Nagasaki... Oh, that was my trigger warning, by the way, because it's we're going to talk about some things that are strange about propaganda. So the bombings in Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of the World War, and it was at the end, it didn't end the war. And we'll look into why I say that in a little bit. But the bombings were the first large-scale use of nuclear technology and led to big changes in technological development and sociopolitical thinking. Now, it helps to know what a nuclear reaction is. So, again, from Wikipedia, and if I mispronounce any of these words, I apologize. The process in which two nuclei, or else a nucleus of an atom and a subatomic particle, such as a proton, neutron, or high-energy electron from outside the atom, collide to produce one or more nuclides that are different from the nuclides that began the process. Thus, a nuclear reaction must cause a transformation of at least one nuclide to another for it to be considered a nuclear reaction it needs to um transform into another kind of nuclide uh which is similar to how in a a chemical reaction you get transformation like if you burn something you start with something one kind of thing and then you end up with something else right 
So, uh, which would be a basic kind of chemical reaction. So if they don't change, they don't qualify. So that's a nuclear reaction. What's a nuclear chain reaction? A nuclear chain reaction occurs when one single nuclear reaction causes an average of one or more subsequent nuclear reactions, thus leading to the possibility of a self-propagating series of these reactions. The nuclear chain reaction releases several million times more energy per reaction than any chemical reaction. Which, when you discover something like that at the time, can definitely be pretty exciting, right? You find this new source of energy and you don't necessarily know what is going to happen, what the consequences are. But at the time, you're like, holy shit, this is crazy. Nuclear chain reactions, like the ones used in the World War II bombs, were hypothesized as early as 1933, and the first human-made self-sustaining nuclear reaction took place on December 2nd, 1942. And that took place at Chicago Pile 1. The first nuclear reactor was part of the Manhattan Project, which was when the Allied forces pushed to create the bombs that would eventually be used on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. There's a lot to be said about the impact the bombings had on Japanese culture. Things like Godzilla and Akira, the movie, the anime movie, are all really offshoots of that cultural experience that was really horrifying. But for the episode, I am going to not necessarily focus on, or I'm not going to focus on that at all. Because uh, I'm more interested in how the winners of that conflict, sort of the hype that they built up around this atomic energy, especially because we were the first ones to get it, so we were probably feeling a little <laughs> superior at the world, which it seems like was the case. But yeah, on this episode, we're going to talk mostly about the build-up to that a build-up to the, the, the Atomic Dreams, because that gets pretty interesting. There's some fun stuff. Like, there's a concept of peaceful bombings with nuclear warheads, uh, and we'll discuss that next episode. But for now, um, I want to talk about, real quick, why I say that we didn't drop the atomic bomb to end the war, at, because there was more at play than that simple narrative. And part of it was that the Japanese jumped on the opportunity to get out of um, bigger problems, but the Japanese didn't surrender it as a direct reaction to the bombings because it took a while to realize what um, had happened, like what, how the destructive staying power of these weapons as opposed to um, a city being leveled because that was being done in Europe and Japan. Uh, cities were being leveled by a bunch of bombs. So anyway, the bomb was originally designed for use against Germany, but by July 1945, the war in Europe was over. And in 1943, this guy Curtis LeMay, which would later be known as the Demon LeMay, all of this is coming from Oliver Stone's documentary series, The Untold History of the United States, uh, it's pretty well researched. I'm going to be using some of the direct quotes on that show. So this guy, Curtis LeMay, who's not the villain of the story, but he definitely, people in the Pacific theater, mainly the Japanese, but also 
I'm sure the Philippines weren't happy uh, with his policies, but he was this guy that said, you got to kill people, and if you kill enough, they'll stop fighting. And he sort of came up with the idea of area bombing. I mean, he didn't invent it. Obviously, the Germans were doing that in the UK, but before him, the US sort of maintained these moral guidelines that would only let them bomb certain targets that were specific to the war effort. And the Air Force was having morale issues at the time because it wasn't necessarily the most effective way to wage war in this particular war. I don't know. The, the, I, 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 don't, I, I'm, I don't know enough to make <laughs> a moral decision on that. But ev- eventually, Curtis LeMay took up the idea of area bombing, which once he moved to the Pacific Theater would take on a different name. And he turned around the war effort because people... Uh, he actually, I think he would even lead the, ch- the, um, the charge with planes, whatever that is. Uh, he would fly like the first plane in the bomber raids. And... Um, So he directed his efforts to the Pacific in late 1944, and that's where he started calling the idea of area bombing, terror bombing, which is an interesting term because it sort of relates to how we approach bombing now. If Imagine if you live in a place where you prefer a cloudy sky because it makes you feel safe and Bright blue skies make you feel vulnerable because drones that you can't see because they're flying so high up in the sky can just randomly take you out. It's pretty crazy the way that warfare happens right now. Yeah, I I understand the concept of terror bombing, and that's maybe not a brand that nowadays we associate with ourselves because we call it different things. You know, we label certain kinds of bombings terror bombings. But back in World War II, that's what our, one of our most important um, dudes in... <laughs> Again, I'm ignorant. Uh, so, um, this affected Japan, but in my personal experience, I went to Manila. I went to Intramuros, which was the Spanish old town in Manila. And it's... A really small area. I don't. I hesitate to say how many miles it is, but it's not. There's not a lot left of it. It was really charming, and obviously, it has its colonial roots. But it was beautiful, and one of the things that the people that were hosting me there took me to see was basically a, it was a tour guide, but it was basically a one-man show where this guy just took you through the history of why Manila is the way that it is now. And it's a strange place, but, you know, I mean, like, I don't mean that in the pejorative. It's just I'm not used to the amount of traffic that you have to deal with. There's some really, like Manila specifically, there's some really beautiful beaches uh, uh, all around. I went to a a very nice beach called Boracay, Boracay, if I'm not an idiot. Um, 
But yeah, it used to be an Art Deco city. And Douglas MacArthur loved the Filipino people. They're very friendly people. And I, when I hear people say that, I always feel like that's a condescending <laughs> generalization. But I didn't find that to be untrue. So it's a very, it seems like it was this beautiful place uh, where the East meets the West, according to this guy's performance tour guide. And it's really passionate. He does characters. He does Douglas MacArthur with an American accent and how he's basically selling the Filipino people these dreams. And he appreciates the city, but eventually it just gets firebombed and 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 leveled. And I think they even had to rebuild the part of it that's still left. But all of that was a really... It was a really moving experience to be there, see this guy, be very passionate about his culture. Um, I mean, Manila's doing fine right now. They have a lot of call centers. I mean, I don't know if this is still the case. I was there in 2015. But there were a lot of call centers because they have pretty American-sounding accents. So that was giving them an edge in the marketplace, in the open, flexible labor market. But yeah, moving back to the bomb, so Tokyo was basically made of bamboo, and we're back to talking about the Oliver Stone. It's episode three, which is the bomb that I'm, I mean, it's, if you're from the 90s, it's also very cool. I mean, it's not cool, but it's a very interesting, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, the bomb. Um, it's about the atom bomb, but it's also the bomb. Uh, there's a quote in the documentary from the Intelligence Committee of Combined Chiefs of Staff, an entry of the Soviet Union into the war would finally convince the Japanese of the inevitability of complete defeat. After the Germans were defeated, the Russians started to set up in Siberia to invade Manchuria, which was occupied by the Japanese. And in May, the Japanese reached out to the Soviets to see if they could keep the Soviets from attacking and get better terms of surrender from the Americans. So by late 1944, Japan was already struggling. But my main point is to show that the bomb wasn't dropped. The bomb was dropped because it was an interesting new toy that they wanted the Russians to know we had, not to end, not to keep the Japanese from fighting. Um, so General Eisenhower has a quote about how he felt about using the bomb. And he says... I was against it on two counts. First, the Japanese were ready to surrender, and it wasn't necessary to hit them with that awful thing. Second, I hated to see our country to be the first to use such a weapon. And then even Curtis LeMay the Demon, who invented terror bombing, said, Even without the atomic bomb and the Russian entry into the war, Japan would have surrendered in two weeks. The atomic bomb had nothing to do with the end of the war. So I don't want to dwell on the gory shit because it's pretty horrifying. Uh, it seems disrespectful not to say who died or not to say how many people died. So I'll try to keep it, you know, try to walk that line. But August 6, 1945, we bombed Hiroshima. We destroyed an area of 1.2 miles in all directions. And there was a 40,000 foot mushroom cloud. In that bombing, tens of thousands died instantly. 
and about 140,000 were dead by the end of the year, 200,000 by 1950. But the U.S. only reported 3,243 enemy soldiers killed. After that bombing, the Japanese did not surrender. Then the Russians attacked Japan on August 9th in Manchuria and Korea and some of the other islands that were held by the Japanese. This historical event gets overshadowed and forgotten because in the early morning on August 9th, America dropped its second bomb on Nagasaki. And for that one, 40,000 died immediately, and only 250 were soldiers. Japan still didn't surrender. Because Japanese cities were being wiped out through all of 1945. Hundreds of planes with thousands of bombs, or one plane with one bomb, didn't seem to make a noticeable difference. For Japan, the devastating news on August 9th was that Russia had invaded. Army Deputy Chief of Staff General Kawabe said it was only in a gradual manner that the horrible wreckage that has been made of Hiroshima became known. In comparison, the Soviet entry into the war was a great shock because we had been in constant fear of it. So basically it was the Russian invasion that ended the war, not the bomb. They were worried about Russia taking all of their territory and destroying the foundation of Japan. So Oliver Stone goes on to back this up further, but I want to move on. I mean, it, this is kind of a bummer. <laughs> I'm more interested in getting us to, you know, the atomic engine that is going to lead to interstellar travel. Or interplanetary travel. Sorry, I always get ahead of myself. But interstellar sounds so much better than um, interplanetary. Anyway, so definitely check out The Untold History of the United States. Uh, It's narrated and directed by Oliver Stone. It's fucking awesome. It has a lot of good information in it. Yeah, so now that I've um, adequately bumped myself out, Let's have fun with some science fiction. What I want to do is go through some of the science fiction that was happening as these um, ideas were coming about and being developed. And the first one is an important one because it played a bit of a role in helping scientists conceive of things. Um, We'll see. It also plays into how an artist gets ripped off, which will be fun. Uh, <laughs> uh, I Well, depending on how the patent went, I don't know. But The World Set Free was published in 1914 by H.G. Wells. And you guys are all familiar. He does some stuff with time travel. He was ahead of the game. I think he made, he wrote a movie with Tom Hanks. No, fucking Tom Cruise. God damn it. All right, so he was fascinated by humanity's ability to harness massive power sources by just building technology. Things like, um, well, the novel begins with the words, and this is basically Wikipedia being paraphrased, so please forgive me. (laughs) Oh, my shame. Um, So the novel begins with the history of mankind is the history of the attainment of external power. Man is a tool-using, fire-making animal. He predicts a nuclear weapon more destructive than anything the world has seen. 
Scientists at the time were observing the radioactive decay of elements like radium and seeing that it would continue for thousands of years. They saw that while the rate of energy release was small, the total amount of energy is massive. So H.G. Wells used this concept as the basis for a story. And so here's a quote from the book. The problem of introducing radioactivity in heavier elements and so tapping the internal energy of atoms was solved by a character in his book before it was conceived IRL. Wells learned, and IRL means in real life, Wells learned about atomic physics by reading the work of William Ramsey, Ernest Rutherford, and Frederick Soddy. Soddy, who's the guy that discovered the disintegration of uranium, gave The World Set Free a shout-out in his book, Wealth, Virtual Wealth, and Debt. And I'm not really sure what that has to do with atomic physics, but it's interesting. <laughs> Maybe he was like a man of many hats. And it was like, hey, <laughs> I got many hustles. Anyway, um, scientist Leo Slizzard. <laughs> I think that's how you pronounce that. It has an accent on the, over the A. Um, physicist Leo Slizzard read the book, in 1932, the world set free. And that same year was the year that the neutron was discovered. So the book about these atomic weapons was discovered before they had even discovered the smaller elements within the atom at the time where an atom was the smallest thing we knew. And in 1933, Slizzard conceived of the idea of a neutron chain reaction. It might actually be supposed to say nuclear chain reaction, uh, and he filed for a patent in 1934. And it seems like Homeboy just read a book and it was like, you know what? I could write a patent for this. I don't know. I, I think it might have been an internet video somewhere that I saw that it doesn't really take. You don't actually have to prove that you can do something to make a patent. You can just, I'm out of my depths. But um, it also reminds me of Mark Zuckerberg saying that he wants to build uh, Neil Stevenson's metaverse. I This is the episode where everyone finds out what a science fiction nerd I am. Although I actually haven't read The World Set Free. This is all me doing a book report based on a Wikipedia article to make my case. So in the books, Wells Atomic Bombs, they have no more force than an ordinary high explosive and they're primitive devices triggered by a bomb thrower biting off a little celluloid stud. So it's like a grenade. They're made of carolinium, which is maybe what at the time was known as one of the heavier elements. And it produces a continual blazing explosion with a half-life of 17 days. And I don't know if that means that the explosion lasts for 17 days, or I guess it would be 36 days, uh, if the half-life, or if it's just the radiation. But it sounds to me like it's, um, well, he says it's never entirely exhausted. To this day, the battlefields and bomb fields of that frantic time in human history are sprinkled with radiant matter, and so centers of inconvenient rays. So I guess... The explosion does last for 36 days, which is a, a, a crazy thing. 
uh, I don't know. Um, that doesn't sound exciting. But it also seems like it's a grenade that poisons the land. Like, kind of like a minefield, but instead of explosives, it's just polluted by radiation. Uh, but I don't know. I haven't read the book. So I guess it's it seems to be like a little bit more controlled um where the poisoning wouldn't be I mean the bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki covered a pretty large bit of territory whereas I think these are like more tiny I don't know but it does remind me of uh like video game weapons cuz basically this whole concept inspires Leo Slizzard. <laughs> I'm sorry, Slizzard family. <laughs> uh, that's better than Guy Standing because it's just fun to say. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it like basically science fiction in this case inspired this guy to patent the nuclear chain reaction and i want to see like if that is going to happen I, I wonder if there's any guns that i'm sure there have been that have been in movies but what i'd like to see is just the healing ray it would make medicine so much easier right you just um kind of like in overwatch uh or a, a gravity gun would be cool or even the gun from portal it would be pretty interesting but, um, yeah, this book was definitely influential in that respect. So, I guess it seems like he took the chain reaction idea uh, to extremes because there's a quote here that says, Never before in the history of warfare had there been a continuing explosive. Indeed, up to the middle of the 20th century, the only explosives known were combustibles whose explosiveness was due entirely to their instantaneousness. And these atomic bombs, which science burst upon the world that night, were strange even to the men who used them. Well, that seems to be in line with how people felt about how the people that ended up using the atomic bomb, because I think LeMay was not um, chill with it after he used it. But he, I think it was his squad that had to drop it. Uh, I mean, not him personally. So from what I understand, the book, it's has a very romantic sense, right? It, it's very futurist, fascist in that way where it's like a utopia where everybody agrees instead of a piecemeal sort of people holding on to their culture which seems to be happening even more aggressively right now as we become more global. But the thesis of the book is that science leads to weapons so powerful that it gives us the wisdom to not use them, right? It, it, we escalate to the, such a destructive force. If you look at this quote in the book, it says, Certainly it seems now that nothing could have been more obvious to the people of the early 20th century than the rapidity with which War was becoming impossible. And as certainly they did not see it until the atomic bombs burst in their fumbling hands. Although the 19th and 20th centuries, the amount of energy that men were able to command was continually increasing, 
Applied to warfare, that meant the power to inflict a blow, the power to destroy, was continually increasing. There was no increase whatever in the ability to escape. Destruction was becoming so facile that any little body of malcontents could use it. Before the last war began, it was a matter of common knowledge that a man could carry about in a handbag the amount of latent energy sufficient to wreck half a city. Yeah, but what we know now is that countries kept fighting wars. The mutually assured destruction and nuclear deterrent idea was like the big show that we were putting on, but in the background we were still fighting basic wars using chemical-based weapons in the Middle East with the Russians, and we're in seven wars right now. We got nuclear weapons. But what's interesting here is that dirty bombs were predicted, right? The idea of someone just carrying a small weapon that was used as heavy propaganda uh, in, in during the second Gulf War. Is that what it's called? The war in Iraq? <laughs> uh, you know, that was like a thing that... W- th- that's a concept that's been around since the idea of nuclear weapons, which was before the existence of nuclear weapons. So, like, and I'm not necessarily saying that he's wrong. Maybe we just haven't gotten to this point. But Wells saw war as the inevitable result of the modern state. The introduction of atomic energy in a world divided resulted in the collapse of society. The only options for humanity were the relapse of mankind into agricultural barbarism or the acceptance of achieved science as the basis of a new social order. Again, fascist utopian. In the book, the threat of nuclear weapons is resolved by forming a world government. Everybody has to agree, right? But that's just not the case right now. Maybe someday. Maybe. From the first, they had to see the round globe as one problem. It was impossible any longer to deal with it piece by piece. They had to secure it universally from any fresh outbreak of atomic destruction. And they had to ensure a permanent and universal pacification. And so all of this, again, I've called it futurism, but it's all happening at the same time that Marinetti was expressing his futurism. In the book, atomic energy has solved the problem of work. In the new order... The majority of our population consists of artists. Again, an idea that's not new, right? We have the the thing uh, from the uh, UBI, Universal Basic Income episode, where, what's his face? Elon Musk is talking about what will it mean when we are just idly, where we don't have to work. The World Set Free concludes with a chapter recounting the reflections of one of the New Order's sages, Marcus Karinin. He argues that knowledge and power, not love, are the essential vocation of humanity, and that there's no absolute limit to either knowledge or power. Which also has that Italian futurist vibe. Or Italian fascist. Where it's not, like, entirely racist. But it's fascist. Anyway, that gives us a sense of how these ideas were going around. We have an author who was reading, doing research, and you can't see my eyebrows right now, but I'm popping them because I want you to know that he's an artist too. 
and artists learn from research, which is what this show is about. Anyway, I want to move into a different time period. I want to talk about a book, which is also very important, that came about as the bomb was being developed. We're talking a time frame from 1942 to 1944. Isaac Asimov's Foundation series, which is awesome. But when I first read it, it was... I just thought it was a normal novel. I didn't realize it was an anthology series. It's actually four or five, depending on which source... (laughs) no it's the same source which wikipedia page you read (laughs) i think it first came out as a novel with four stories and then the one we have now is with five stories but it was four or five stories that were published the first one there's like seven books or something there's books written by people that aren't isaac asimov but got permission from the estate um, but I think he did, definitely did three. Anyway, I'm more interested in the first book. Uh, and those stories got published in Astounding Science Fiction, and it was based on the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, which is a book by Edward Gibbon that, at the, I mean, definitely at the time was the groundbreaking book on Roman history, right? Um, Because I think one of the things about it was that it was only first or secondhand sources that were used to talk about things. So it was a pretty intense book, or maybe I'm confusing it with something else. But that's what makes the book or the uh, the foundation series really fun, because it was written as the bomb was being developed and it's based on this concept of psychohistory which is a psychohistory is a fictional science in the books which combines history sociology and mathematical statistics to make general predictions about the future behavior of very large groups of people such as the galactic empire yeah <laughs> this is a lot more fun anyway Again, think of the Roman Empire, but with interstellar travel. Like, an, well, not a Star Wars, but, you know, you get what I'm saying. It's a, it's a lot, or, <laughs> it's a lot more like the prequels, which are about the Senate. But it's still interesting, right? We'll talk about why. I mean, more interesting, <laughs> and not to hate on millennials that like the uh, Star Wars movies. But they're fucking atrocious. Uh, But you guys are okay. I understand why you like them. So the basic concept of psychohistory is that while you cannot predict the actions of a particular individual, by applying the laws of statistics to a large group of people, you can predict the general flow of future events. And what Isaac Asimov did to explain this was he used the gas analogy, where it's hard to predict the motion of a single molecule of gas But with kinetic theory, we can predict the mass action of the gas pretty accurately. So Harry Seldon, which is the uh, guy who invented 
psychohistory, which is remember a fake science. Um, let's not have it sprout up because <laughs> it has a good name. But uh, so he, so he, Harry Seldon applies his science to the Quintillion, which is fun, citizens of the Galactic Empire, to predict that the Empire will collapse in 500 years. And this will be followed by 30,000 years of a dark age. Sort of like the Middle Ages, I guess. But obviously, the Empire <laughs> doesn't like... They think this kind of talk is treasonous. They don't want to hear that they're going to collapse in 500 years. <laughs> Even though if you talked about collapsing... <laughs> tell the American government they're going to collapse in 500 years. <laughs> and see when they'll start getting to it. <laughs> uh Sorry. <laughs> so, um, what they do, what the Empire does is they arrest Harry Seldon and put him on trial for his crimes. And he testifies that he can't stop the collapse, but that, uh, like, you know, of the Empire, he can't bring it to a halt. But what he can do is by preserving all human knowledge in the Encyclopedia Galactica... They can limit the Dark Ages to one millennium. So he's basically talking about shaving 29,000 years from this Dark Age. Because if you compile all the knowledge in human history, and this is why, I guess, why Gibbon's book was so thorough and all that. I think there was um, the fire in, there was in Alexandria, there was a library at, that historians lament having lost because it burnt down and a bunch of information was lost. I guess basically this is sort of a reference to that, right? Where if we manage, especially with nuclear technology, if you, if you know how to use it, it can definitely make <laughs> a difference as opposed to not knowing how to use it. And it's even more real now that, I mean, this is written as the book, uh, as the technology is being developed transitioning from a theoretical to a reality but now we know well it's interesting and kind of what i want to cover in the next episode is this idea of like well it's dangerous on earth but with the nuclear engine that uh and we'll also talk about applications on earth uh and the dangers of that but since you can just keep it in space it's an interesting thing that now the technology might be developed beyond a point where it would have been developed otherwise. This is just me talking shit. I don't know. But yeah, so basically what he's saying is that the empire is going to fall, but if we can compile all of the information from the empire and everything that everybody knows, and one of the important things that Asimov acknowledged later on was that one of the limitations of psychohistory is that for it to work, you need to live in a universe where the only sentient life is human beings. Because I guess you can't statistically and scientifically interpret a alien race that you don't know. It's all crazy, nerdy shit. So I'm sure we've lost, like, everybody at this point. But I guess... Instead of making this dude a martyr, what they do is they send him this guy talking. Well, I guess he's not talking about 
against the empire he's just doing science but the empire sees it differently and they don't want to kill him and make him a martyr so they send him to a remote planet called terminus where he establishes the foundation and out of the spotlight where like they he can't cause problems for the empire and this is where it gets kind of fun because the foundation is a large colony of scientists that compiles the knowledge to make the encyclopedia galactica but they're essentially cut off from the backing of the galactic empire because they're so far away and this is where the edward given book decline and fall of the roman empire comes into play they're technically under the empire's protection but the four nearby kingdoms have declared their own independence, and the scientists on Terminus are the only ones in this corner of the galaxy with atomic technology, but they don't have atomic weapons. So it leaves them vulnerable because the kingdom wants that. You know, they got the goods, they got all this science. <laughs> That's a funny way to phrase it. But they got all this cool stuff, you know, like CD players kind of shit, and they want to just jack them. I mean, that, <laughs> I'm like breaking it down to like wanting to rob somebody uh, because you're a bully, not what the book talks about. I don't, there's no CD players. But that leads us into an interesting thing that happens in the book, which is. What the mayor of Terminus does to sort of deflect this potential for aggression from nearby states is he starts to share the scientific and medical technology with the kingdoms to just keep the kingdoms chill. And when we talk about medical technology, it's also atomic, right? Because we actually have atomic technology now, um, which is also interesting. But I didn't read enough about. I just wanted to mention, give it a shout out. <laughs> but but uh, what ends up happening is that the people of the kingdoms think the technicians are wielding magic, not science. They have these devices and these devices can do things. And it's sort of like, I guess it plays on the notion of, um, I mean, it's a cliche, but cameras capturing your soul and just like things people attributing um superstitions to things that they are not familiar with superstitions where they're familiar familiarizing things whatever you get what i'm saying so they see the technicians as holy men and what the mayor does is he sets up their technology program as a religion and then the technicians who maintain all this equipment form an atomic priesthood who run and maintain the technology of nuclear power. So these priests travel the worlds of the four kingdoms fixing stuff, but they do it as like de or not deities, but you know, empowered by deities. How does that shit work? I don't even remember. And so to fill their ranks, they recruit from the population of those worlds and the priesthood is taught that this galactic spirit guides the operation of the foundation's technology new recruits are taught the operation but not the theoretical underpinnings of the foundation's technology so they have access to this cool stuff and they they basically learn enough to run it and maintain it but not enough to really empower themselves and obviously the church has its 
own more traditional religious instructions like with its own dogma and its own theology and ethics so they're not just technicians that fix stuff they actually have to give spiritual guidance to people (laughs) so it's like a therapist and that is also your Maytag repairman. Oh, I'm I'm not even old enough for that reference. Do Maytag still have repairmen? Or is that just like things that I used to see on Nick at Night? So yeah, and basically the quote that they have describing the religion is that ethically it's fine. It scarcely varies from the various philosophies of the old empire. High moral standards and all that. There's nothing to complain about from that viewpoint. So... It seems just like what he's implying is that there's an opportunity to use metaphysics to manipulate people, and it's taken. And that's not necessarily untrue, but not all books take that viewpoint, right? So it it gives you an idea of how science nerdy (laughs) Isaac Asimov's work is, which it kind of is. It's fun, but I mean, it's not unriveting but it's uh it's definitely um i guess now would be qualify they would qualify it as hard science fiction or maybe i'm wrong maybe it wouldn't no i guess it would be more like historical fiction sci-fi kind of like a neil stevenson who hasn't written historical fiction if the people that they recruit for this thing if they see through all the metaphysics and grasp the science they get to stay on terminus and become part of the broader organization, and then they actually learn what's really going on, right? Uh, and then that's the priesthood. And then the rest of the hierarchy is that they send out um, ambassadors as representatives, but they're considered high priests. And it's a similar thing where the kingdom has its godlike figure, and then the church is sort of separate but the tr- they empower each other, so it would be from before the merchant state uh, or the merchant class. Well, I guess it's a hybrid, right? Because he's definitely using a lot of uh, Roman Empire historical references to form his stuff, so it's interesting. And then the mayor obviously calls himself Chief Primate, <laughs> which is uh, it's a weird phrase (laughs) it's so uh it also seems like oh we're so science-based that eventually we'll acknowledge that we're monkeys (laughs) or that we're primates or you know what i'm saying like that's not a popular so he was the chief primate of the religion and the religion is referred to the as the religion of science a lot in the book but it's never really given a formal name but people when they refer to this religion outside the book call it scientism and this is fun from the um wikipedia article i'm just gonna read this last part because it's interesting uh the power of scientism's pronouncements is greatly enhanced by the fact that its rituals and observance are powered by technology and science, and therefore its clergy can reliably produce miracles on demand. The holy food is actually medicine, so it really does cure the sick. The throne of the king really is a flying machine, so he can truly levitate over subjects with a glowing aura. 
So deep is the indoctrination of the priesthood that they continued to believe in these miracles, even as they themselves worked the technology to make them happen. Most significantly, scientism can follow through on its threats when the people offend the galactic spirit, casting the navy adrift and shutting down the entire planet except for the temples, with a word from a priest. And so, I'm going to kind of end it there, because it's a lot of stuff. But next what I, next episode, we're going to get into more the atomic age. This is sort of the precursor, right? This is how people saw nuclear power as it was, or not everybody, but the bigger names that lasted. So, But next week, we're going to talk about more of the atomic age and how it's extending into now. But what I find interesting about this description of the, of the pronouncements of uh, scientism is that it ties nicely into something that I want to cover later on, which is this guy who wants to establish a new religion with a artificial intelligence godhead. And in articles that I've read about it, what people have said is that it's an interesting transition that's going to happen in our lifetime where people are going to start believing it's sort of the same idea right that you're believing in a practical existing thing that can actually do things for you which is scary too because what <laughs> if you worship one algorithm versus another <laughs> what can these algorithms do it gets fucking crazy anyway i'll leave you guys with that and just a reminder that religion isn't going to go away so fucking accept it. <laughs> We're not becoming more secular. We're just going to find new things to believe in. Because that's just how it is. And it's not necessarily the worst thing. You don't believe in a God. I kind of don't care. Not that you don't believe in a God. I just kind of don't care either way. I'm more interested in how people think about God and approach him than I am in having a definitive answer. But that goes into another episode, which involves chaos magic, which, shh, don't tell anyone I said that. If you'd like to support the show, subscribe. And then if you really want to go that extra mile, you can give us a five-star review and pitch us a topic. And what I'll do is I'll give you a shout-out and we can start getting a sense of what it is that people who enjoy the show are into themselves. Um, not that I'm going to tailor things, but it's nice to... I want it to be more of a community, especially because I'm all by myself now. So, uh, yeah. You can find the show on social media as at what's my thesis and i am at javier proenza i'll leave the spelling to you on all social media sites that we care to use <laughs>